I'm going to guess that was clay. Take a wild guess there. Hey, it's okay to shout sometimes. I think a lot of times we're actually a little too quiet in here. Well, good morning, church. I hope that y'all have had a great weekend and a great week so far, and I know everybody's excited about spring break. Um, but once you get out of high school, it's just another day. Still got to go to work, amen? But no, I'm, I'm very grateful and, and thankful for the opportunity this morning to, to be here with you. Brother Mike asked me about two weeks ago if I would preach, and I was... Um, very thankful and grateful for the opportunity as always, and it's a privilege and an honor to be with you this morning. Uh, church, before we begin, I'd like to go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to open our eyes this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, I just pray this morning that, Lord, as we look at this text, Lord God, I pray that, Lord, You would... I'll speak where I can't. Lord, I pray that you give me clarity of mind and, uh, Lord, understanding of the text. And, Lord, I just pray that, Lord, for a passion for the people in this room. And, Lord, I just pray that, uh, God, you'd show us where we've been failing in our lives. And, Lord, I... I just pray that um, if there's anybody here that's lost, Lord, that today you would use this text, Lord, to convict them and to open their eyes, Lord, and to show them what it means to be a Christian. Lord, I pray they would see your grace this morning. Lord, I pray that they would understand what you have done for them. Lord God, I pray that those of us who have been born again, Lord, who are walking with you, God, I pray that you would open our eyes to where we have failed, Lord where we lack commitment and devotion and sacrifice in areas of our life. And Lord, I just pray. I pray, Lord God, that you'd help us understand the cost of discipleship this morning and, Lord, what you require of us. And, uh, Lord, I just pray that I would decrease, Lord, and that you would increase. And, God, I pray for a presence of your Spirit in here this morning. God, I pray that we would not leave here the same way that we came. God, I pray that you would bring to our attention the various things in our lives, Lord, that we're holding on to. So, God, I pray for every soul in this room. Lord, I just pray that uh, you would preach this message. Lord God, I love you and I thank you. In your name I pray, amen. Well, this morning, I want to look at a... Man, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I'm sorry, y'all. Um, I, I want to look at a passage this morning in Mark chapter 10. But before we begin, I want to read a passage of Scripture from the Old Testament. And I believe that it is very important for us to understand this text in the Old Testament because it sets the precedence for understanding the text that we're going to look at this morning. 
And so you can go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 17 this morning. That's where we're going to be. But before we begin to look at that text, I want to read a passage of Scripture to you from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. I want to read a, a verse to you to kind of set the tone and build the foundation that we're going to work off of this morning. And so the book of Deuteronomy was written, God's holy inspired word given to the nation of Israel a couple thousand years ago. We know that Israel is the nation that God built through the descendants of a man named Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God made a promise to Abraham. He said, through your descendants, I'm going to build a nation. And through that nation, I'm going to bring forth the Messiah, my son, and he will redeem the world from sin. The curse that we are all, we're, we're all under. We're born under this curse. And God made a promise to Israel to bring salvation to the world through that nation. And that has come true through the God-man Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And God gave Israel the law as a means to govern over them as a society, to keep them holy and to set them apart from the other nations in the world. And the law is good. The law is not an evil thing. The law was a good thing. It was the way in which God's people expressed their devotion and commitment and love to God was through keeping His law. But the law was never meant to save. The law itself was never meant to be salvific. True trust and faith and submission in Yahweh alone is how the people in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant were saved, looking toward the coming Messiah who we now look back on. And so the law in Deuteronomy is a, is a re-emphasis of the law that had been given in Exodus and Leviticus. And it was a reminder to Israel that when you, when you enter into this promised land, this is how you will conduct yourself. You will obey the Lord. You will be set apart from the other nations. And by this, you will be blessed. If we obey the Lord's commands, what will happen? We will be blessed. But if we do not, we will be cursed. We will suffer the trials and tribulations of this lifetime alone, apart from God having disobeyed Him. We see this true in our lives today. We disobey God's commandments. We find ourselves in rough situations. And so the law here in Deuteronomy was, was, was given to reemphasize what God had given to Israel. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, what we find is a very powerful phrase. It's called the Shema. In Judaism, this verse is the most prominent prayer to this day. It's recited daily by Jews, consistently as I believe it should be with us. I believe we should recite the Shema. I believe that we should rise in the morning, not a ritual, right? Nothing, I'm not talking legalism. I'm just saying I think it's good for our soul to get up in the morning and recite this Scripture, to think about it during the day. Because the law of God can essentially be summed up in this one verse. This is what the text says, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is no other. There is none that transcends Him. There is none that is more holy than Him. There is none that is more powerful. He is God alone, and there is no other. He is perfect, He is righteous, He's holy, He's kind, He's merciful, He's loving, He's just, He's righteous, He's sovereign in everything that He does. He is perfect. He is the essence of perfection. He is perfection. God is the ultimate standard 
for these, these adjectives that I just used. He is beyond, above, and far above all things that we could ever possibly understand. And so the Shema declares to Israel and to the world and to us today that the Lord God of Israel, the God is revealed in the Scriptures, the, the God is revealed through the Lord Jesus Christ, He is the only God that there has ever been and that there ever will be. And all things that have been, that have been created, that everything that we can see and feel tangibly with our five senses, and everything that we cannot see was created by Him, for Him, through Him, for the purpose of glorifying Him. That is the reason why you have breath in your lungs this morning. That's the reason why you have a mind and a heart, a body. Your purpose is to glorify God. You look back at the garden, Genesis chapter 3, you look at creation. God created the world to glorify Himself, to live in relation with His creatures. We are most satisfied when we are in relationship with God. I can tell you why. Think about this logically. If God created all things... And all things in the universe flow from Him. How then can there be purpose from any other thing outside of Him? Anything else is second nature. It holds no candle. So why do we attempt to live and devote time and commitment and effort to various things that cannot truly quench the human soul? And you see the world doing this all around us. People are desperately, desperately looking for hope. They're looking for purpose and meaning. They say, well, I can, I can find it in my career. I can find it in my money. I can find it in my family. I can find it in my hobby. If these people accept me and I reach this, this, this social status position in Chipley, Florida, I'll be satisfied. If I can get that land or if I can get that house or if I can marry this girl or if I can marry that guy, I'll be satisfied. But let me tell you, anything under the sun ultimately is vanity. It's meaningless. It cannot quench the soul. These, all these things are not bad in and of themselves, but see, we are looking and the world is looking for purpose outside of God and you see a great void in the world around us because of this very truth. You want to know why there's evil and, and, and heartbreak and depression and the murder and evil and hate in the world? It's because of sin. People are separated from God, not living up to their true purpose in creation. And so what the Shema demonstrates for us in Deuteronomy 6, 4 is the great commitment and devotion that we are to have to God alone. It expresses that, Lord, you are God. There's none other. You are perfect. Therefore, Lord, I am most satisfied when, when I love you with all of my heart, with all of my soul, and with all of my strength. We who have been born again in this room can testify that there is nothing there is nothing in this universe, and I'm telling you, I've tried a lot of things when I was living in sin. There is nothing that quenches the soul. That Jesus said in John 4, he said, I'll give you water, you'll never thirst again. He said, you're, you're, you're desiring this bread. Jesus said, I can give you bread, you'll never hunger again. I'm telling you, Jesus Christ, he can quench the soul of humanity. There's nothing better than knowing him, loving him intimately. And the Shema expresses the commitment and devotion that is required of us. And in our lives, we devote commitment and uh, devotion and sacrifice to various things in our lives, don't we? We go to work every day. We work to provide for our families. We sacrifice for the things that are the most important to us. I'm in school right now. Got a year and a half left. I don't know if I'm going to make it. I'm trying. I'm pushing through. Amen? 
trying to get through. Many of you went to school. Many of you went four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. It's hard. But you know what? I'm willing to do whatever it takes to pass. Failure's not an option. I got a family. I got to pass. I'm willing to do whatever it takes because this is very valuable to me. And in our lives, we're willing to go to the farthest extremes for the things that are the most valuable to us. We're prepared to commit and be devoted and do whatever it takes for the things that are the most important to us. And what we see from the Scripture through creation, through the incarnation of Christ, through His death, burial, and resurrection, obviously, He should be the most important thing to us in our lives. Let this be convicting this morning. Let us recognize where we're failing as Christians today. The Shema demonstrates this, and we look at our lives, and we see the great commitment that we display for the things that are the most valuable to us. Jesus, in, in, in Matthew 13, 44, my favorite parable, I don't know why it hasn't been, but I guess I just was overlooking it for a long time, but it hits me in the heart. Jesus compared the kingdom of God to this. He said salvation, knowing God essentially, the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God is like this. It's like a man who was walking through a field, Matthew 13, 44. And he was walking through that field and he found a treasure. And that man went back and he took everything that he had and he sold it so that he could buy that field because that's how valuable the treasure was in that field. Jesus is using this parable as an illustration to get the people then to understand in us today that the kingdom of God is so valuable that it is worth all of our commitment and devotion and time and sacrifice. Jesus said it is worth us giving up everything that we have to pursue. I can remember when I repented. Many of you in here can testify to this. When I repented, and I, I was in a hotel room in Augusta, Georgia. I had a room full of drugs, living a sexually immoral life. But when it got to me and the Lord had convicted me and I recognized my, my, my sinfulness before God, how broken my life was, how hopeless and desperate I was, when I got down on my knees and I looked up to the heavens, I said, Lord Jesus, I don't care what it is. I don't care where I've got to go, what I've got to give up, who I've got to stop going around. It does not matter, Lord. I want you. An extreme level of commitment and devotion. Now, I'm not tooting my horn. I'm just saying when, you, when a sinner recognizes what Jesus is requiring, it is full commitment and devotion. I was willing to do whatever it took. I took them drugs. I walked out on that table. When I pushed them towards the fellows I was with, I said, I'm done. They said, whoa, something's wrong. He went in that bathroom, and he come out a different way. I was broken. I took what I had. I got pushed it on the table. I said, I'm done. I'm going home. And I got in my car, and I drove back to Pine Grove Baptist Church. And that, that week, I met with Stanley Norman, my pastor. And I come down the aisle crying. I said, Brother Stan, I don't understand. He said, Son, it don't matter. All that matters is your home now. Your home. This is the level of commitment and devotion that we are called to have when following the Lord Jesus Christ and know God. Look at the first century church. These men were, they, they were thrown in amphitheaters, eaten alive by animals, burned at the stake, forced to fight gladiators. I mean, it, it was real. The cost of discipleship meant their life. And I'm telling you, if you look at the church in America today, something is missing. There is a problem in the church today. There is this idea that if you pray this prayer and you acknowledge these ideas, that is a Christian. Let me explain to you what Jesus said about that. 
Jesus said in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's extreme. He then goes on in Mark 8, 34, and he says, Whoever desires to come off after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. This is extreme, right? If some of you may be thinking, this is that Jesus freak stuff. This is biblical Christianity. Anything short of this is not what it means to be a Christian. And when we look at the gospel for what it is, we begin to recognize, hold on. These folks preaching on TV, they ain't preaching what's in the scripture. This Americanized, watered-down gospel, this ain't what Jesus preached. The gospel will change a man's life radically. The Shema demonstrates that the commitment that God requires of us is a life-changing commitment. And I'm telling you, there's people in the churches today that have never experienced this. You may be one of them. Today, we're going to look at a man in the scripture who desired salvation. He desired Christ, but guess what? He was not willing to give his life to follow the Lord. He was not truly willing to commit himself to follow Christ. And there may be some here in this room today that you like the idea of Christianity, you like what it can offer, but you're not gonna, you, you haven't followed, you haven't surrendered and truly committed your life to Christ. To you this morning, I pray that the Lord would use this text to open your eyes this morning to where you stand before Him. Because I'm telling you, talk about life or death, we're talking about eternity here. And this is something we need not play with. I can remember tracing a theme through the book of Acts, the preservation of the gospel. How did the apostles preserve the gospel amidst such persecution and trial and tribulation? You want to know how they preserved the gospel? They continually proclaimed it. And if we don't continually proclaim and emphasize and, and, and harp on the truth of the gospel, it will be distorted and lost over time. Look back through history. And so today, I want to look at a man who come across Jesus during his ministry. Look with me in Mark chapter 10 this morning. Verse 17. <laughs> Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Now the context here before we get in, right? You know, hey, context is king when we're interpreting the Scripture. If you take anything out of context, you miss its whole meaning and value. This is why there's so many different sects of Christianity, I believe, amongst other you know, reasons is because of context. It's very important to take the Bible in its context and understand what's going on. So in the context here in Mark chapter 10, we're moving towards the, the ending of Jesus' public ministry. He is, he is making His way to accomplish that which He came to do, which was to give His life as a ransom for many. And so in Mark chapter 10, Jesus was preaching in a region beyond the Jordan. He was in Judea on the other side of the Jordan River. If you look at a map in the back of your Bible, you can see exactly where Jesus was to some degree. And the Bible says that he was there and he was teaching, he was preaching, he was performing miracles, and he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God, calling men to repent and to be reconciled or to be made right with God by faith in him. And he was there, and the Bible says in verse 17, 
he began to depart from that region. And in verse 17, Mark kind of tells us, and we look through the rest of the text, you find out Jesus was leaving this place heading towards Jerusalem to go bear the cross for the sins of the world. And the Bible tells us that as he was leaving, this is what happened. Mark 10, 17. As he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now that's a question right there, ain't it? I would venture to say that's the most important question anybody can ever ask. I think that is the question. That ain't a bad question. That is the question. I pray that if you know that you are lost in here this morning, that you would ask yourself that very same question. What do I need to do to be saved? This level of commitment you're talking about, well, what does this mean? Well, as Jesus was leaving, the Bible tells us that a man came running and knelt before him. Now, I was talking to Brother Mike and Jennifer about this Friday, I think it was, and Jennifer said, you probably need to point out the fact this man was running. Something was obviously very important to this man. Something was pressing this man so deeply that he, was, he came chasing Jesus before Jesus departed out of this city. He come running after Jesus. Now, Matthew and Luke record this same account that we're looking at this morning. John, you know, he's always in left field doing his own thing. He didn't record this one for whatever reason. He was there, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they recorded it. And what we know about this man is just enough, but not enough, right? We always want to know a little, little bit more, but the Scriptures give us just enough. This man was young, he was rich, and he had authority, right? All he needed was be good-looking, and he would have the whole package, right? We don't know his name, we don't know his occupation, but we know that he had everything the world could offer, essentially. And the Bible says that as Jesus was departing, this man came running up to Jesus, and he knelt before Christ, before Jesus' apostles, before the crowd that may have been there. He came running, and he slid down like he was going into first base. I'm just exaggerating here. But he came and he knelt before Christ, signifying that he recognized there's something special about this man. I believe that this man had heard Jesus' teaching. Jesus had been in this region for some time, and this man had probably heard Jesus talking about the law and about the kingdom of God and all of these things. And so he recognized this man has got to be a prophet. He's, he's from God. There's something unique about this man. And so he come and he asked Jesus a very sort of random question for a first century Jew. He says, what shall I do to inherit the kingdom of God? What shall I do to be saved? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, any first century Jew under Pharisaical Judaism would have understood the answer to that question. You keep the law to every jot, every tittle, every letter of the law, and you then will obtain salvation. But see, what we know is that the law itself was never meant to be salvific. Men were saved by faith in God, true submission to God always. And the law was then an expression of that commitment. The same way for us today. We're not saved by keeping commands. We're saved by faith in Christ. And because of that, we keep His commands. And so this man had probably heard Jesus preaching about how keeping the law itself could not obtain men's salvation. And so this man was probably greatly shook and, and, and confused and hopeless. Because what we see here, this man, he says, Lord, I've been trying to keep these commands my whole life. 
But Jesus had revealed, as we see in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere, that the law itself, keeping the law itself, you can, be a, you can try to be as good as you want to be, but it will never be good enough. You can take Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy, you can write down every single law in there, and you can try to keep every one of them, you will fail every time. And so Jesus, looking back at this man, a true question, right? And this question was fundamental to Jesus' ministry. John 3.16, John 3.17, John 5.24. Jesus came to bring eternal life. Jesus is the essence of eternal life. John 5.24, I believe he says, if you believe in me, you have eternal life. So this was a fundamental question that if anybody could answer, it was Christ. And so Jesus looks at him in verse 18. And so Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Notice the man had called him good teacher. Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He says, why do you call me good, right? This man's kneeling before Jesus. The apostles are beside him. Maybe this crowd, man's looking up at him. Jesus says, why do you call me good? There is one good but God. Now, was Jesus saying that he himself was not good? Absolutely not. Jesus is the goodest, if you could use that word. He's the best. He's perfect, holy, sinless, righteous, almighty, sovereign ruler of the universe. Eternal being. Has always existed. Second part of the Godhead. Perfect. Now, of course, he wasn't saying that he himself wasn't good. What Jesus come to do is the answer to this question. He come to glorify God. And so everything Jesus said and done was to bring glory to the Father. Everything he did was to point men to the Father. Everything he did was to redeem men and bring them into a relationship with the Father. And so here, Jesus uses this as an opportunity to get this man to understand. God alone is good. You are not good. No one else is good but God. He's pointing this man to the righteousness of God. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. Then notice what Jesus does in verse 19. He uses the law to reveal to this man his sinfulness. Jesus says, you know the commandments, right? He said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. He lists six of them. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. See, the keeping of the commandments in the right way, which was out of a submission and a true faith and love for God, that faith and submission and love for God was the means of salvation. And then the obedience to the commandments was the expression of that. And so when Jesus quotes the law here, quotes these commands, essentially he's trying to show this man, well, submit yourself to God. Trust in Him, serve Him, love Him. And Jesus used this as the means, right, to reveal to this man that he was lost. And see, this is what the law does. Paul talks about this in Galatians and Romans. The law was good, but the law was never sufficient. It was never meant to be. The law was to be used as a tutor to show men, hold on, I can't keep up with all these laws. I can't earn my righteousness. And so Jesus uses the law here to get this man, to get, get the wheels turning. Yeah, Jesus is looking down at this man. And then he responded in verse 20. And man, he answered and said to him, Teacher, notice he doesn't call him good teacher anymore. He said, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now, some of you might be thinking, Oh, that boy's self righteous there. He thinks he's good. 
He thinks he is a keeper of the law. I don't think that at all. I think this man is genuinely seeking answers. I think this man has actually been trying his whole life to be as good as he possibly could. I think this man, from his youth, is referring most likely to his 13th birthday when a young Jewish boy becomes a son of the commandment, which means now he is now deemed worthy to keep the Jewish precepts and laws. And as he's kneeling before Christ, he says, Lord, our teacher, I've been trying to keep these commandments my whole life. I've done fairly decent at it. See, this man was religious his entire life. His entire life, he was as religious as possible, we could almost assume. There are people every day that wake up thinking that they are truly born again when they are simply religious. There are people maybe in this room today you are a religious person, but not a Christian. Because you have never surrendered, truly surrendered to follow Christ. This man right here was as religious as it could be. Keeping the laws, trying to keep the commandments, trying to do right. But one thing he lacked. He never truly put his faith and his trust in God alone. There may be people in here that you are you look at this man and you see yourself looking back. Religious. You may have the bumper sticker. You may wear the cute shirts with the verses. You may have the cup with the monogram or the bumper sticker. Back of the car. You might say Christian things. You might walk in and out of this church every Sunday. You might can quote some scripture. You celebrate the holidays. You might even throw up an amen every once in a while. You get a little wild but have never actually truly submitted your life to follow Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus is talking about, separating the wheat from the tares. It's true commitment and devotion and sacrifice to Him. You may be thinking, well, I, this is some, I've never really kind of thought about it. This is some extreme stuff. Once again, this is, this is biblical Christianity. This is what Christ calls for us to do. It's a serious thing. It is a great commitment. Now, make no mistake, we're justified freely by, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, understand, curios, master. Calls us to devote and give our lives to Him. And we see in verse 20, this man, he was religious. He was not a fearer of Yahweh. He was not a lover of Yahweh. Yahweh, a name for God. The Old Testament. And so in verse 21, the Bible says, Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. How powerful is that? Jesus, looking at this man, straight into his heart. He's kneeling before him. Jesus has compassion on this man. This man is desperately looking for hope and answers. And you know what? Jesus has compassion. You want me to tell you why? Because Jesus wants to save all those that will come to him. He desires for all men to be saved, for that none to perish, but that all come to repentance. Jesus loves you. He hates the sin, but He loves you. He gave His life for your sin. He wants to bring you into a relationship with God, your Maker. Despite the sin in your life, despite all that you have done, let me assure you, Jesus Christ loves you. You look on that cross, and what we see is a reminder of the love of God displayed for humanity. We also see the holiness and the righteousness of God 
displayed on the cross. Jesus, looking at this man, he loved him. And he said to him, One thing you like, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross and follow me. This man said, Lord, he said, Teacher, all these things, these commandments, I've kept them. But then Jesus contrasts that, and he says, But one thing you're missing, the most fundamental part of it all. You do not worship or serve the Lord God. You are just playing the part. Outwardly, you may look like you are a, a, a follower of Yahweh. You may look like you're keeping it, but, but inwardly, you've never truly submitted to God. Because look what Jesus said in verse 21. He says, but one thing you lack, you're still serving money. Your God is your riches. Your God is your possessions. You remember what Jesus said, I think, in John or Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and money. This man here, Yahweh was never his God. Money was. And I'm afraid there may be, if there is, people in here today that Christ is not truly your Lord. You may be serving yourself. Jesus told him, he revealed to him the most fundamental part of what he was missing, and that was true submission and faith in God. He told him to go and take that and sell it, all that he had. And then notice what Jesus promised him, and you will have treasure in heaven. People say, oh, I don't want to be no Christian. I got to quit doing all this stuff. Look what I got to give up. Look what you're getting in return. We're getting the forgiveness of sins. Something that's priceless. We are getting eternal life. When these 80, 90 little years end here, guess what? Everybody's going somewhere else. And so I'm asking you, what's really important? Jesus says, let go of this idol. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he said, repent. Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe the gospel. Repent. Give up these things, and I will give you this. This man had all these possessions, but Jesus, Jesus said in Mark 6, 21, He said, don't store riches here on this earth where moth and dust can destroy them and where thieves break in and steal, but live your life to store treasure in heaven by submitting to Christ, loving Him and obeying Him and following Him. But this man, he looked at the life that he lived, the sin in his life, his possessions. He said, you know, he made a decision right here. He said, well, you know, I like Jesus and I like what he offers. I don't want to go to hell. But I'm not willing to give my life to him. I'm not willing to actually change the way that I live, right? What a wild concept. Jesus told him to do this and he said, and come, take up the cross, which was an instrument of death, which represented full submission. And he said, follow me. And you know, I believe with all my heart that if that man would have got up off his knees and looked at Jesus and said, okay, Lord, I'm going, that Jesus would have stood right there with his apostles and waited for that man. But that man rejected Christ. He turned from Christ. He did not want this full commitment and devotion. 
It wasn't enough to him. It makes me think about something that happened the other day with my wife. I was holding my baby girl, Sage. I was holding her like this. I said, I love you, sissy. I love you, Sage. I love you, sissy. I was just looking at her. She's so beautiful. And as I was looking at her, saying I love you, she just was unloading in her diaper. <laughs> just dropping an absolute bomb. I'm talking about when they grunt and their face turns red and like water's about to come out of their eyes and they're just like, just, they're, it doesn't matter what, what's going on, they're just frozen. She was just unloading in this diaper. And as I'm saying, I love you, sissy, I'm passing her off to my wife. <laughs> like any good husband, right? And so, as I, I'm sitting there, I'm saying, I love you, sissy, and I'm passing her off. My wife goes, well, he don't love you that much. You know, just joking, I think. But, you know, that man loved Jesus to a certain extent. Many people in here going to love Jesus, right? But would rather pledge their allegiance to a political party or an ideology or a nation instead of him. Now, I, be careful. I'm not speaking anything about our country or nation, but I'm just saying our full submission and devotion is to Christ before anything else. Over our sin, over our life, anything. This man, he wanted it, but he didn't want it bad enough. Verse 22, the Bible tells us, many theologian scholars say this is the saddest verse in the New Testament. I don't, I, would, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that because Revelation's got some pretty sad ones. Verse 22, But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Where is that man today? Now, I'm not trying to scare nobody into heaven or scare nobody out of hell. I'm just asking the question. Where do you think he's at today? You think it was worth it? I don't. You know something I see in this man that, that I, I, I recognize in myself and I think that we all maybe can agree? This man left Jesus the same way that he came. How many weeks do you walk in this church and leave the same way you came? And you say, well, Jesus ain't in front of us. Is he not? Is his spirit not presence where two or three are gathered together in his name? In the midst of his body, the, the, the people that he gave his blood for? The preaching of his word, how can they believe? How can they have faith without a preacher? How can they hear without the gospel? Is Christ, we know that he's seated in heaven, but is he not omnipresent? Is he not before us? Do we not meet with him when the word of God is preached and the Holy Spirit penetrates our hearts? How often do we meet with the Lord, come in here and get up and walk out the same way we came? James says, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We preach not just to preach. Brother Mike's not preparing 
hours and hours and hours and hours every week praying and praying and praying and praying just to come in here and, and, and holler. I know that we know this, but I think we need to be reminded of it. Preparing and praying fearfully that the, the people of God would take the word and apply it and change. And, no, and listen, I may be, look like I'm pointing, I've got four or five fingers pointing at me. This message preached to me first. I'm failing. I recognize this in my life. But let us not leave the way that we came. We recognize from the Shema, from this scripture right here, that Jesus alone is worthy of our commitment and devotion and sacrifice. And my question to you is, what is it in your life that is taking that place? Some of you in here have been born again for a long time, faithful members of this church. Praise God. I, I say that seriously, not lightly. Praise the Lord for that. But there is still areas of our life Things that we are withholding with God, we're keeping things that we're keeping in our pocket. Some sin or something we should be doing that we're not. And my question to you, this 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 man right now, this is a salvific encounter, but it's, it's it's also just as much about sanctification. This man was withholding something, he wouldn't let go of it to follow the Lord. And I'm asking you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, what are you with what are you holding on to that you're not willing to give up to the Lord? What are you not doing that you know that you should be doing? Lord, I know I need to be spend time, spending time with you in the Word in the morning. I need to be meeting with you and praying. Lord, that coworker, I need to be setting an example for him. I need not watch these things on TV. I continuously watch. I need to stop looking at my phone the way that I do. Whatever it is, whatever sin, whatever idol that is in your life, would you lay it before the Lord and give your utmost commitment and devotion to Him today? We all say we want revival. Revival begins with repentance. So I just challenge you and I offer that call today. For those of you who are lost and the Spirit is speaking to you this morning, I want you to understand something. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. If the Lord is speaking to you through His Word and through this, this message about what it means to be a Christian, a disciple, if this is prodding and prompting your heart, Please, please do not leave this room today. When we enter into a time of devotion, if you got questions about this following Jesus and discipleship and you recognize I've never truly surrendered to Christ, if you want to know God and, and, and the Lord is tugging on your heart, John 6 says no man can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. If the Father is drawing you unto himself this morning, don't leave here. If you got questions, ask. During the invitation, Brother Mike, Brother Bobby will be down here. I'll be here. We got our AMS, Brother Caleb. He'll be in here. I mean, talk to somebody. Even after the service, if you got a question, ask. Come talk to us. The Lord's speaking to me. I, I, I want to know more about this. Or if you're at to the point where I'm ready to surrender my life to Christ, would you come? Would you take up your cross and follow Jesus today? If there's somebody here you've been visiting for a while and you feel led to come and join this fellowship, would you come? Now, make no mistake, you're going to be expected to serve, right? This is a battleship, not a cruise ship. We've all got a place to serve and something to do. We've all got our own weight to carry. But if you feel like this is the place where God would have you to come to serve, to reach this community, would you come? You and your family, would you come? I'm going to challenge you this morning to take this message and apply it as much as I'm going to try to this week. 
Let us understand the commitment, discipleship, and sacrifice that our God requires of us. I'm going to read this one passage, and then we're going to, I'm going to pray, and we'll enter into our devotion, our invitation time. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the life, the eternal life that only comes through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, the forgiveness of sins was paid for by his blood, by his sinless holy life. Jesus, be magnified in this place today. Lord, you are the true satisfaction of our soul, and Lord, you are King eternal. And Lord, I worship you. We bow down before you, and God, we pray that, Lord, you've been glorified and magnified in here today, Lord. And I pray that you would convict us, cause us to search out our lives and confess our sins. And Lord, I pray for that one. I pray for that one, Lord. I pray that you work in them now. Convict them, Lord. Enlighten them. Open their eyes, Lord, that they might see. Lord, we pray. God, we love you and we thank you. My Lord and my King, Jesus, in your name I pray. Amen.